All right. Did you get all that? <laughs> wow. Well, with that introduction, we are excited this morning to begin a, a journey together through God's Word, taking on average a book a week, although Genesis has so much, we're going to cover Genesis for the next couple of weeks, and then on average we'll cover one book of the Bible each week for the next year or so. So we begin our, our road trip this morning with the very first book, the book of Genesis. And Genesis is truly one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Why? Because this is where it all begins. This is where everything starts. In fact, the book, or the word Genesis actually means uh, origin, source, birth, or beginnings. This is the book of beginnings. And Genesis actually tells us the beginning of just about everything except for God. We discover the beginning of the created world. We discover, we discover the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of sin, the beginning of the promise of redemption, the beginning of family life, the beginning of civilizations, the beginning of nations, and the beginning of a chosen people. We discover in the book of Genesis the answer to life's biggest questions. For example, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? Did God really create the world that we live in? And if so, how did he do it? Uh, why and for what purpose did God create man in the first place? Why is this world so messed up today? Where did sin come from? What's the consequences of it? What does the past tell us about the future that you and I are going to face? How do we experience peace and joy in our marriages and in our families? What has God provided? What will he do to bring life and meaning to our lives? Hundreds of questions, big questions, that are answered, at least in part, beginning here in the book of Genesis. In fact, the book of Genesis has, been, has really been called the, the, the seed plot of the entire Bible. It really is where everything begins. And so this truly is one of the most important books of all 66 books. Well, our video here this morning gave us kind of a brief overview of the first half of the book, which is uh, some pretty exciting stuff. And so what we want to do is to basically uh, dive down and explore just a portion of the first half of Genesis to unpack that, that uh, basically gives uh, meaning to the, the theme and the purpose of the book overall, and to apply it to our lives. We don't want this just to be kind of a head knowledge thing where we grow in our understanding of uh, God's Word, but also to apply it to our hearts and lives, right where we live. And so please turn with me to the very first chapter of Genesis. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to the first uh, chapter. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Also, if you have an uh, iPhone or an iPad, you might want to follow along if you have a copy of God's Word um, in, that, in that context as well. Now understand that right here at the very beginning, this is not a human theory as to how it all began. This is divine testimony. This is how God says it all began. In fact, the very first verse makes a very simple but, but a very bold proclamation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so <laughs> the Bible, right at the very beginning, presumes there's a God. Uh, it doesn't try to explain it, doesn't try to uh, uh, rationalize it or prove that fact. The issue is that there is a God. That is a given right here at the very beginning. And so if you accept the very first sentence of the Bible, you won't have a problem accepting the rest of God's Word. In fact, if you believe that there's a God who created everything, then you won't have a problem with anything else. In fact, the rest of the Bible is just really commentary. 
after verse 1. It's all further explanation. It's further clarification of that very, very first verse. If you start with the fact that there's a creator God, then listen, you won't have a problem with the virgin birth. You won't have a problem with any of the miracles, the atonement, the resurrection, the afterlife, or any other supernatural event. Why? Because there's a God who created it all. That's the given at the very beginning. The great theologian, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, once said that there are two pillars uh, upon which everything else we believe uh, is built upon. Two, we might call them uh, presuppositions that we hold to be true. First of all, that there is a God. And secondly, that he has revealed himself. I was talking to an agnostic a couple of years ago, and I explained those uh, two premises that we all hold to be true, that there is a God and that he has revealed himself. And he had no problem with the first one. He said, okay, there's a God, maybe, maybe not. But I do not believe, he said, that he has revealed himself to us. And I pointed out that really that's the only way you can know anything about God is that he has revealed himself to us, and that's the only way we can know. God had to reveal himself to us in order for us to know anything about him. The bug in the bottle cannot expect basically to know anything about the boy who put him there. And so everything we know about God comes from God. And that's what Genesis is all about. Genesis is all about God revealing himself to us. In fact, God has chosen to reveal himself to us in basically three ways. First of all, through creation. Secondly, through his word. And thirdly, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so again, uh, once you accept belief in God, everything else in the Bible is just commentary. <laughs> it's just further explanation or clarification of the fact that God exists and created everything. I love how Warren Wearsby puts it. He writes, no scientist or historian can improve upon in the beginning God. This simple statement, he writes, refutes the atheist who says there is no God, the agnostic who claims we cannot know God, the polytheist who worships many gods, the pantheist who says that all nature is God, the materialist who claims that matter is eternal and not created, and the fatalist, who teaches that there is no divine plan beyond creation and history. God's personality is seen right up front here at the very beginning. Uh, he speaks, he sees, he names, and he blesses. Right here in the first chapter. And so, again, what we see here in Genesis uh, chapter 1 is divine testimony as to how it all began. Follow with me in verse 1. Let's start right off by looking at the introduction uh, to the Bible and the introduction to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want to just look at the introduction here. Follow with me, and I have it up on the screen if you'd like. It's a little bit small. You might have to squint a little bit, and for those that are older, you might have to put your glasses on. Follow along. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face or the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and so it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. 
Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit, and seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the expanse, the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every wing had burned after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which is fruit yielding seed. And it shall be food for you and to every beast of the field and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. <laughs> Guess what? You just finished one-third of the reading for the day. Whether you follow uh, the Scripture reading app that we talked about here in the announcements or use the uh, reading schedule that is in the seat behind you, and we encourage you to take that bookmark and put it uh, with your Bible or with your notepad, uh, you are on your way. And uh, we invite you to join us on a journey this year of reading through uh, God's Word in one year. And that day begins today, September 10th. 2017. In fact, on your app, you can actually say the start date, I want to be uh, September the 10th, 2017, and it automatically lays out three or four chapters from
from this point on for the next 12 months to get through God's word in that period of time. You can use the, uh, again, the uh, schedule uh, bookmark there on the back of the chair in front of you. Our challenge to you is to take about 10 or 15 minutes every day and go through God's word. Uh, I guarantee it will change your life. If you're not a daily reader uh, and, 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 and uh, a plier of God's word, uh, start today. Uh, begin today. Take that app, take that bookmark, and begin the journey with us. Why? Because all Scripture is inspired by God, 2 Tim Timothy 3.16. All of it is inspired, or theonoustos, it is God-breathed. It is profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, uh, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman or the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so we are beginning a journey, and we're excited about that. Real quickly, I want to highlight three truths, three takeaways that we're introduced to uh, here in the first passage. Uh, first and foremost, we discover that God is the creator. <laughs> in a process unknown to us, the Bible tells us that God spoke things into existence. God said it, and it was so. And he pre-programmed in every living creature the DNA necessary for growth, for reproduction, and for development. Now what scientists claim today is that basically all the matter around us basically somehow just came into being. Uh, in the beginning was, was nothing, and I don't know, nothing rebelled and became something. Poof! <laughs> Let me tell you why that is impossible. First of all, we know that the universe is expanding. The universe is expanding at a million miles an hour. And if we read it all backwards, every scientist, every astronomer agrees, it all had to have a beginning at some point in the past. Now scientists call that the Big Bang. But what they will never know is how it happened or why it happened. And they don't have a clue as to what happened before that. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to tell us why. But everyone agrees the universe is expanding, and so it had to have a beginning. And apart from God, it is absolutely impossible for something to come from nothing. But secondly, we know that the universe is not only expanding, the universe is expending. In other words, energy is slowly burning out. And scientists agree the universe will someday be a cold and dark place. Someday our universe is going to come to a grinding halt. Isaiah the prophet tells us all the hosts of heaven, what are the hosts of heaven? The, heaven, the hosts of heaven are the stars. All the stars will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. And so everyone is in agreement. There was a beginning, and there will definitely be an ending. And only the Bible tells us how and why. Thirdly, we know that the universe is vastly complex. We see the grand sweeping complexity right here in the very first chapter of Genesis. For example, just think of the stars, just the stars that he has made. We pointed out a few weeks ago that uh, back in the 16th century, the astronomer Heperditus came up with a number. He said there were 1,022 stars in the sky. He counted them. 
And then he was corrected by uh, Tolone and, and Kepler, who corrected him a few years later. They were up uh, looking one night, and they said, no, there's really 1,055, no, no, one, 1,056 stars. Today, scientists have no idea how many stars there are, but there are at least 100 billion stars in just our galaxy, and we don't even know how many galaxies there are. They estimate probably about 100 billion. 100 billion stars in 100 billion galaxies. And now with the Hubble telescope I was reading here, we can actually see more than 15 billion light years out into God's universe. And yet, they're absolutely amazed. The further they look, <laughs> they discover there's no thinning out of the galaxies of the universe that we live in. As far as they can see, it gets more and more complex. In other words, the vastness of the universe just keeps going and going and going and is just as strong as far as we can see as it is where we are today. And now they admit there are more stars known in the universe than there are probably grains of sand on the seashore of every beach on earth. God said it all along in Jeremiah 33:22. The host of heaven, that is the stars, cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. So one day what they did is they took the Hubble uh, telescope and they decided let's pick a dark, a dark place of the universe and, 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 and look as far as we possibly can out 15 billion light years and see what we can see in the darkest, emptiest spot of the universe. And this is what they found. Uh, those aren't stars. As far as they could see, what did they see? These are clusters of galaxies as far out as they can possibly see and, uh, and count, and they, of course they can't count it. The universe is so vastly complex and incredibly infinite. In fact, we don't even know and understand the smallest particle that makes up our universe. It used to be atoms. Remember back in school you'd learn about electrons and neutrons and protons, and now scientists say there are more than 150 even smaller particles, basically with names like gravitons and photons and quarks. And they don't have a clue, really, what makes up the smallest particle of our universe. And so listen, we will never reach the depths of the well. We will never reach the heights of the universe because knowledge, like God, the God who created it, is infinite. A few years ago, Time Magazine ran a cover story that asked the question, what does science tell us about God? And I pointed out a few weeks ago that really the question ought to be, what does God tell us about science? But scientist uh, Aldous Huxley made this bold statement. He said, modern science makes it impossible to believe in a personal God. Why is that? Well, the argument goes like this, that as science advances and things can be verified in the, in the laboratory, the necessity to explain it all the way with God is eliminated. And so there are those that basically say you cannot believe in both God and science. Well, we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, what is science? The word science simply means knowledge. And so as believers, we believe that science is simply the knowledge or the study of what God has created. And there are some who would assert that there are contradictions between science and what the Bible teaches. Some would say or argue that the Bible makes scientific blunders. The Bible contradicts itself. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That is not true. In fact, those who say that usually are people who have never really read the Bible. They just heard that from somebody else. We showed a few weeks ago that the only conflict that really takes place is when science tries to be something that it's not. In other words, when it tries to be a religion, by basically attempting to answer questions of origin and destiny. 
True science can only deal with things that are observable and reproducible. And so scientists are merely speculating when they talk about origin or they talk about destiny. Harvard astrophysicist Owen Gingrich, who happens to be a Christian, he made this statement. He says, I passionately believe in a universe with purpose, although I cannot prove it. And guess what? Nobody else can either. Why? Because true science can really only deal with the present and deal with some, and maybe lean on some past experience. The real conflict is not an intellectual conflict. It's not a, a conflict between science and scripture. The real conflict always has been between God and man. It's a moral issue. It's a moral question. Romans 1.18 spells it out. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so listen, again, the conflict out there is not between science and scripture. The conflict is and always has been between God and man. And so what does science, what does knowledge tell us about God? Several years ago, one prominent scientist wrote an interesting article. Six reasons, he said, why I believe in God. Six reasons this scientist gives. He points out, number one, consider the rotation of the earth. He said, our globe spins on its axis at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour. If it were much slower, our days and nights would be longer. The vegetation would freeze in the long night, or it would burn in the long day, and there would be no life. Consider the heat of the sun. 12,000 degrees at a surface temperature, and we're just far enough away to be blessed by that terrific heat. If the sun gave off 2% less radiation, we would freeze to death. If it gave off just 2% more, we would all be crispy critters. Consider the slant of the earth at 23 and a half degrees. If it were slightly different than that, the vapors of the oceans would ice over the continents and there would be no life. Consider the moon. If the moon were uh, a little further away rather than its present distance, twice each day giant tides would inundate every bit of landmass on this earth. Consider the crust of the earth, he says. Just a little thicker, there would be no life because there would be no oxygen. Consider the thinness of the atmosphere. If our atmosphere was just a little bit thinner, the millions of meteors now burning themselves out in space would plummet this earth into oblivion. He says those are just six. He had dozens and dozens and dozens of others. But he said, those are just some of the reasons, he says, why I believe in God. It's all calibrated on our, for our behalf. Genesis tells us, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was good. So the very first thing we discover in Genesis is the fact that God is creator. The second thing we learn is that creation is uh, and, and was relatively spontaneous. Now, I don't want to get controversial here, but did God really create everything in six 24-hour days? There are two views among Bible scholars today as to the length of time it took God to create 
uh, everything around us. There's the old earth view and there's the young earth view. And again, we don't have time to get into all of that this morning, but let me just sum it up really quick. There's the old earth view. Those who hold the old earth view see God as working within the known record of science and that creation actually occurred in stages over billions of years. They look at the scientific evidence of the fact that the earth appears to be billions of years old and that man seems to have first appeared on earth about 40,000 years ago. So when it comes to those scientists who also believe in the Genesis account, they come up, come up with what they call the gap theory. We, they, they, they basically see a huge gap between verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop right there, period. Now there's a gap. The argument is that the Hebrew word here for created stressed that it was all formed new and perfect. The word is always used in the Bible with, with God as its subject. In other words, God created, and he created everything perfect. And then notice what happens in verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so the conclusion is that there must have been something that happened between verse 1 and verse 2, a gap of time. And during that period of time, they basically say this is where basically all the geological periods occurred down throughout history. Uh, this would explain why the earth appears to be so old. And this theory speculates that this gap between verse 1 and verse 2 was a period of time where the earth fell into a chaotic state. This is where sin entered into the universe. This is where Satan must have fallen. Now, when did he fall? This theory holds that the fall of Satan must have been, again, in that gap between verses 1 and 2. Now, all of that sounds plausible. I've got good friends, uh, good uh, scholars that I read and have heard that, that hold to that, um, to that view. Uh, but then there are some that go a little bit too far. And they say that in that uh, billions of years gap, evolution took place in that gap of time between verse 1 and 2. In other words, they think that there might have been some, some pre-Adam or pre-Adamic subhuman race that evolved up to the point of Adam, who was really the first Homo erectus, and he was really the first truly fully human. And those who hold this view are called theistic evolutionists. And I have family members, I have friends that hold that view. They actually believe that God set it all into motion, kind of sat back and watched evolution slowly, uh, uh, pro the process take over. And what follows is, of course, the lower forms that slowly evolved into more complex forms of life. Now, the problem with that evolutionary theory is that it's just that. It's a theory. It's not a fact, even though they sometimes will teach. This is a fact. It's a theory. And while we don't have time to get into it this morning, I'm convinced the hard evidence basically shows that there are huge problems with the theory of evolution. The scientific evidence cannot prove it, and the biblical record absolutely disputes it. In fact, I'm convinced that it really takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does in God. Why? Because no matter what they tell you, do the research and you'll discover that the evidence for the theory of evolution is weak and it's contradictory. While the evidence for the design of creation is overwhelming. There are hundreds of great resources, and I encourage you to, to do some digging on this. Uh, Tornado in a Junkyard, The Relentless Myth of Darwinism by James Perloff. Uh, Not by Chance, Shattering the Modern Theory of Evolution by Lee Spetner. Uh, Darwin's Black Box is a classic. Uh, the Biochemical Challenge to Evolution by Michael Behe. I just ordered a book just this last week that I thought rather intriguing. Uh, Evolution's Achilles Heels. Nine PhD scientists who are in the top of their fields basically explain 
evolution's fatal flaws that basically are in areas that are claimed to be their greatest strengths. That's a scientific research out there that you won't find in schools or universities. Why is that? Why? Why don't you hear about that? Because there's an all-pervasive bias in our society that supports a secular worldview that rejects any notion of God and his existence. My uh, sister-in-law sent me this picture on her t-shirt. I think she superimposed it on there, but it says that basically over 25% of human genes are the same as those of a banana. And I thought, that's hilarious, that's funny. I wonder if that's true, and I looked it up, and sure enough, it's not 25%, it's 60%. 60% of the human genes are the same as those of a banana. And so the point is that having the same genes doesn't prove evolution. It simply indicates that God has used some of the same ingredients throughout his creation. Now, having said that, I do personally believe there might be some people that have more in common with a, a banana than others. But hey, that's just my, my opinion. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the other commonly held view today among scholars is the young earth view. And again, we're not going to have time this morning. I just want to touch on it, introduce it, because this is the kind of thing you're going to hear if you haven't already. This is the kind of thing that's going to enter into discussions uh, with uh, other uh, Christians and non-Christians. But this view holds that basically the earth is about... Uh, is a lot younger. Uh, it holds that creation did take place over six literal 24-hour days, and that the earth is more closer to maybe 15,000 years than 15 billion. Now, to be honest, besides the theory of evolution, which I totally reject, by the way, there are good biblical arguments on both sides of the old earth versus young earth uh, view. And I've heard and read good theologians, uh, great Bible scholars who hold to one view or the other, and either really could be correct. We, we need to agree to disagree on this because it's not really that important as far as how old the earth is. The point is, God created it. That's the point of Genesis chapter 1. It should never be a source of division between believers. But let me just offer a couple of things to consider as we look at uh, our passage this morning. Number one, the, day, uh, the word day in Genesis chapter 1, is it literal or is it figurative? When the Bible says that God made the sun, moon, and stars in one day, is that a literal 24-hour day? The Hebrew word for day is yom. The Hebrew scholars admit that yom, or day, could be translated either as a, uh, a literal 24-hour day or figurative. For example, uh, when the Bible says in the days of Noah, it's not talking about a 24-hour period of time. It's talking about an undisclosed uh, period, an era, the days of Noah. Or when the Bible talks about the last days, it's referring to an undefined period of time that is leading up toward the end. And so sometimes the word day in the Bible is figurative, and sometimes it's a literal 24-hour period of time. The Hebrew scholars also tell us that whenever a number appears before the word yom or day, it is always literal. Always. And so when Genesis 1 says there was evening and there was morning one day, there was evening and morning a second day, the language and the context of the passage clearly tells us that it is a literal 24-hour day. So my personal conviction is that God made it in 24-hour days, six days. Now, listen, he's God. He could have done it in six seconds, right? He's God. Question number two, how then do we explain the, uh, the apparent uh, 
age of the earth being and looking so old. And again, whether it's 10,000 years old or 10 billion years old, it, the point is God made it. Uh, God created it. But it's also obvious that God can work outside the laws of science. And so some have suggested that God could have created the earth in an aged state. For example, how old was Adam the first day he was created? He wasn't created as a baby. He was created to, well, he looked about maybe, I don't know, 18, 21, 25, we don't know. But on day one, he was in an aged state. God created him to look full-grown and mature as a man. Uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine, the wine was in an aged state immediately. Or multiplied the bread and the fish, he created them in an aged state. And so all that has caused some people to speculate that God could have created the earth itself in an aged state. Why would he do that? Is he out to confuse people? No, not at all. One author I wrote said, maybe in order to conform it better to the laws of nature. Why? Because scientists tell us that the ancient age of the earth, in fact, the ancient age of the universe, basically directly affects and impacts and sustains all of life as we know it. And so it's possible that God created it old and mature to begin with. Now, the Bible doesn't say that, so it's speculation, but it's possible. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's a good thing just to say, I don't know. I'm going to be true to the text. I'm going to come back to the Word of God because it is God's inspired text. And so I'm going to start with that and look at everything through the lens of God's revealed Scripture. By way of application this morning, two things, two takeaways uh, from our passage here uh, in Genesis chapter 1. When we consider the, the size and the scope of God's universe and the way it operates in perfect order and precision, we understand and know, first and foremost, number one, that God is concerned about every detail of your life and mine. I mean, think about it. If God knows every star by name, don't you think he knows every detail of your life? I mean, Isaiah 40, verse 26 tells us that he named every star. How many stars are there? Remember? <laughs> he has a name for every single one of them. Isaiah says, lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. If God knows every star by name, don't you think he knows every detail and is concerned about every single area of your life and mine? Don't you think he can solve the petty problems that you and I face every moment of every day? I think we worry about things way too much. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life. As to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrayed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. 
And so listen, first and foremost, we learn from Genesis 1 that God is concerned about every detail of your life and mine. And that is an amazing thing. That's a comforting thing. That's a thing we can rest in. What a joy there is in that. And furthermore, number two, God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. God has a plan for all of creation. He knows where it's all going. God has a plan for you. He knows where you're going in this life and in the next. And he longs to lead us. He longs to guide us. He longs to direct us. If we'll just let him. May we trust in him more. May we know him better. One of my favorite verses in all the scriptures is Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, if you're going to brag, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the God who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. Do you know the Lord this morning? (laughs) Do you want to know him better? I do. Do you understand him? Do you understand his plan? Do you understand the purpose he has for your life? Join us in the journey. We're excited to start this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for your goodness to us, that you are our creator, that you love each and every one of us, and you know everything about us. You know every detail, and yet you still love us. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. Father, we thank you and praise you for the way that you've provided for us. You have created the world around us, the greater universe, and also the immediate world that we live in day to day, moment by moment. And you're in control. So, Father, help us to hear your voice more clearly. We know that you always speak clearly. We don't always listen clearly. And so, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to what you would have to say to us. Because, Father, we want to hear your voice. We want to know you better. We want to love you more. We want to follow you more completely and obey you more fully. Father, we want to be all that you've called us to be. We want to be molded and shaped into the very image of Jesus. May our thoughts, our words, our deeds always reflect the love and light of Jesus in a dark and dying world in desperate need of a Savior. So, Father, as we begin this journey, I pray that you'd help us with the spiritual discipline of, of getting into your word every day listening to your spirit speak to us through your word. Father, help us to, 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 to cut back the static. There's so many things, the busyness around us in this world that just robs us and rips us off of our faith and joy. And so, Father, quiet our hearts. Help us, Father, to look to you, keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, Father, to know him better, to be like him in everything that we are and everything that we do. And we commit our hearts and lives to you afresh on this new day. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.